0: Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam.
1: I'm Dr Kate McCrossan and
0: I'm Dr Kate Steele
1: and today's episode is the second instalment of Catch My Disease where we discuss airway management and infection control in the setting of the COVID-19 pandemic. As always in this podcast we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA.
0: Now, as a continuation from our earlier discussion about intubating and extubating COVID patients, let's chat about the use of high-flow nasal
1: oxygen and non-invasive ventilation. So what are the recommendations for the use of these forms of ventilation in the setting of the pandemic?
0: Well, the advice from the World Health Organization is that high-flow nasal oxygen should be used for selected adults with hypoxemic respiratory failure and that it can reduce the need for intubation. They also state that patients should be in a monitored area and that anaesthetists should be available nearby to intubate if necessary, where intubation is advocated if they continue to deteriorate or if they don't improve after a short trial of one hour. Obviously, the decision of when and how to use high flow nasal oxygen will depend on your own institution and usually intensive care specialists. There are, of course, things to consider from the perspective of infection control.
1: So, we know that these forms of ventilation are aerosol generating, and studies have measured air dispersion with high flow nasal oxygen. But how this relates to droplet dispersion remains unclear. Mean air dispersion distances increased from 65 to 172 millimetres as flow increased from 10 litres to 60 litres. This increased to 620 millimetres laterally if the high-flow nasal oxygen was loose. Mm, That's incredible. Environmental bacterial contamination has been investigated where high-flow nasal oxygen has been compared to traditional oxygen face masks in critically ill patients with pneumonia. There was no increase in air or contact surface contamination by either gram-negative or total bacteria. But we still don't know whether this holds for viruses as there are no studies of this nature. Mm.
0: Now, because there are no studies comparing survival benefit in COVID-19 patients with the use of high-flow nasal oxygen, the authors don't recommend its use because of the increased risk of environmental contamination. Current World Health Organization recommendations state that high-flow nasal oxygen should be avoided where airborne precautions and negative pressure isolation rooms aren't available. Now, what about CPAP?
1: Again, there are limitations regarding studies looking at aerosol dispersion with CPAP, but here is what we know. Trials measuring air dispersion with full face mask CPAP show that it was negligible at both low, which is 5cm of water, and high, which is 20cm of water pressures. CPAP with nasal pillows performs worse, maximum mean dispersion of 207mm at 5cm of water, and up to 332mm at 20cm of water. Based on these findings, the recommendation by the authors is that any non-invasive ventilation should be performed in negative pressure rooms with staff wearing full airborne PPE.
0: Nice. Now, we're going to step away from airway management in the setting of the pandemic and talk about some considerations for subspecialty anesthesia. Let's start with obstetrics. How is our practice as anesthetists affected with the laboring parturient?
1: So first and foremost, pregnant women do not appear to have a greater susceptibility to COVID-19 than the general population. So when presenting to hospital, these patients should be risk stratified, and appropriate rooms and PPE should be provided accordingly. Avoiding the use of birthing pools in confirmed or suspected cases is recommended as PPE use becomes unreliable in this setting. Increased ventilation whilst in labour coupled with respiratory symptoms in infected patients may increase the risk of airborne transmission. And this goes back to what we mentioned previously about aerosol-generating mm. behaviours. Mm. The suggestion at this point is that surgical face masks should be worn by these um, parturients who are at risk. Now, when looking at interventions for analgesia and labouring women, we know that the provision of Entonox is non-aerosol-generating, but the recommendation is that it should be used with a standard single-patient Uh, up to 0.05 of a millimetre pore-sized hydrophobic filter. Although thrombocytopenia is more common in COVID-19 patients, neuraxial anaesthesia is not otherwise contraindicated and early epidural is actually preferred and is a good choice for safe patient care.
0: In the UK, the standard PPE practice for cesarean delivery is to use droplet precautions. Now, the reason behind this is that cesarean delivery has a low risk of conversion to an aerosol-generating general anaesthetic, since we follow the ANSCA guidelines for the PPE use for these patients. The choice should be based on the patient's COVID-19 risk and the risk of community transmission. For any patient deemed high risk of COVID-19, and regardless of the risk of community transmission, the recommendation is for airborne precautions, regardless of anesthetic subspecialty. The recommendation for patients with a low COVID-19 risk varies depending on the risk of community transmission, so be sure to look at the flow diagram within the ANSCA document in these instances. Now, what about pediatrics?
1: The authors of the BJA articles didn't have a lot to say about paediatrics. COVID-19 is generally a mild disease within the paediatric population and the complexity in managing these patients in the presence of potentially infected patients or carers and the risk this poses to staff and other patients. It's worth mentioning at this point that the ANSC guidelines for PPE are for all patients inclusive of paediatric patients. Uh, and similarly, with obstetrics, it's important to have a look at your local guidelines mm. when you're taking care of um, suspected COVID patients. Absolutely. So lastly, it's important that we discuss considerations for infection control within a critical care environment for a couple of reasons. Firstly, as an anaesthetist, the responsibility falls on us for definitive airway management in deteriorating COVID-19 patients. And in an emergency setting, this will likely happen outside of the operating room. Secondly, in the setting of elective surgical cancellations, anaesthetic staff will most likely be reallocated to assist in the management of critical care patients.
0: Now, there are a few issues with equipment and facilities that we know can happen in the setting of a pandemic and surges in case numbers. Things like limited number of negative or neutral pressure rooms, possibly with neutral pressure antechambers. Limited numbers of critical care beds within the unit limited PBE, limited numbers of ventilators, and general airway equipment. Now, when planning for managing surges in cases, there are a few considerations to be mindful of. So in talk of case overflow into operating theatres, it's worth keeping in mind that most theatres operate within a positive pressure airflow system, and this is to reduce surgical site contamination, as opposed to the need for negative pressure airflow systems required to reduce environmental contamination within the pandemic. Now, it may be possible to convert large contained areas within a hospital to negative pressure areas, but in the instance that this cannot be done, additional infection control practices should be implemented. PPE choice and use is now based on a risk stratified approach as opposed to a one size fits all approach from earlier within the pandemic. ICU supportive management is changing to a more adaptive approach, and this is in the setting of forthcoming trials looking at CPAP and non-invasive ventilation and high-flow nasal oxygen in the setting of managing COVID-19 patients drug and oxygen shortages. Now, the more oxygen-hungry ventilatory strategies and increased ventilator usage can potentially reach the maximum flow rate through the vacuum-insulated evaporators and oxygen stores, resulting in oxygen failure to the entire hospital. Now, this starts at the sites most distal to the regulator. This is limited only by reducing the number of devices that are pulling oxygen and using more oxygen-efficient equipment.
1: Yeah, I've never really considered the fact that the hospital could just run no. out of oxygen before. But no. yeah, it's an interesting thought, right? It is. A lot and of people on high flows. Yeah, mm. and it
0: makes sense. If you pull too much too quickly, it's the whole system's going to fail, which is actually terrifying. Mm. Terrifying.
1: So, ANZICS, who are the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society, have produced a brilliant document called COVID-19 Guidelines. Be sure to see the link provided in the episode description. And it discusses nearly every aspect of pandemic planning, with specific strategies that address critical care bed shortages, issues with PPE, staffing and many other things. This document is absolutely worth reading. It's succinct, it's clear and has a fantastic breadth of considerations for pandemic management. Look,
0: the authors of the articles published within the BJA have done a fantastic job reviewing all the data out there about COVID-19 and relating it to anaesthesia, and we highly recommend reading these articles for a more comprehensive discussion on the issues faced by anaesthetists within the setting of the current pandemic. As I'm sure you're all aware, the information that we have about the virus and how it behaves is constantly changing, and the recommendations for anaesthesia and airway management may well change in the near future, so it pays to keep informed about new and important review articles and trials that may impact on our current management guidelines.
1: So at the end of each episode, we share something we've learned this week in anaesthetics. Kate, what have you learned? <laughs> well, I
0: learned how to safely administer intrathecal clonidine. So the situation was that I was providing anaesthesia for a robotic joint replacement in a patient having a spinal anaesthetic where I wanted an increased duration for my block. Now, our clonidine is preservative free and safe to be administered intrathecally. And in a healthy and robust male in his early 60s, I gave 25 micrograms with 20 micrograms of fentanyl and Heavy bupivacaine. Now, something I noticed with this type of anesthetic was managing hypotension. Um, as usual, decrease in blood pressure that we see with a neuraxial anesthesia is slightly exacerbated with the administration of intrathecal clonidine. But in this healthy patient, it really wasn't that big of a deal.
1: So, is 25 mics a standard dose of clonidine in a spinal? Or no, or so, so, that is a it? low
0: dose. So, okay. what what we and by we i mean some of my colleagues have seen is that the larger the doses that are recommended in the literature so one mic per kilogram even 0.5 mics okay. per kilogram are associated with a more obvious decrease in blood pressure so this is a significantly reduced dose, dose this was probably about 0.3 mics per kilo for this particular person and it worked like an absolute treat it was so really how long good. did it
1: last for one? A
0: little over four hours. Okay. Yeah, it was impressive. It was there good. you go. All
1: right. Now,
0: Kate, what have you learned this week?
1: Well, I know we've discussed lots of things about airways and COVID and <laughs> intrathecal quantity, but I really learned to go back to basics yeah. because. I received a request for assistance with a difficult cannula, Mm. and long story short, the patient already had a cannula in which was clean and working just fine and only (laughs) needed for 16 more hours. Uh, So, the junior doctor involved had been told by the nursing staff on their ward that the cannula needed routine replacement. Mm. But after a discussion, I felt that the risk benefit ratio was probably more in favor of leaving the existing cannula in. So, I did give a little bit of handy hints to the junior involved about how to approach this with the nursing staff and how to document it, Mm. which will generally allow the anxiety potentially of people on the ward and provide Mm -hmm. a good outcome for all involved Mm -hmm. particularly the poor patient who would have been subject to another procedure they probably didn't really need so um i went all through why they needed it and then at the end of the discussion found (laughs) out that they actually already had one in
0: well power to you for actually discovering that that was the case and not putting this poor person through you know the pleasure of having another cannula inserted so yeah look it's tempting enough.
1: just to you know you're busy it's tempting just to grab your ultrasound and trot yeah, down to course. the ward but in fact um yeah it always pays just to get the basic information yeah so.
0: absolutely nice so look work. it's
1: been um, another content heavy episode series on deep breaths as always you can contact us at deep at pod at gmail.com you can find us wherever you find your podcasts
0: And if you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee or you would like to join us as a guest, please feel free to let us
1: know. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.